Welcome to the podcast. I'm Brian, and this is the Happy Harvest Horror Show, where we get together and talk about all our favorite spooky things and spooky culture. And this week, Corey's out, but I've got a new guest, Jim Rohner. He's the co-host of Cast of Cthulhu, and he's joining us today to talk some cosmic horror. How you doing, Jim? Uh, you know, pretty good. Um, it was funny the way you said Jim Rohner was almost I was like, did I pronounce his name properly? But yes, it, it, I, I don't I know am. if I've ever said your last name is what I realized firing through that. <laughs> like, it's always Jim. Well, yours is easier because it's like, oh, yeah, Muldoon, the guy from Jurassic Park. Uh, Thank you for recognizing that. A yeah, lot of people don't. Yeah. Whereas my last name just rhymes with a, an awkward juvenile term for an erection. So it's, you know. <laughs> Um, and as as a as the youngest of three boys growing up, I should say the youngest of three skinny boys growing up, I uh, was often called uh, Little Boner, and I just thought it was because we were bony and skinny kids. Uh, <laughs> and then and then the world corrupted. Me. <laughs> but yes, I, I am I am the co-host of the Cast of Cthulhu uh, that I do with uh, my friend and co-host James McCormick, uh, a podcast that started as a pun or wordplay. Um, the Cast of Cthulhu obviously being a play on the Call of Cthulhu. And yeah, I had I had done podcasting for a while. I uh, had done one by myself called I Do Movies Badly, which I quit in December of, was it 2020? Yes, December of 2020, um, just because my my dad got COVID and uh, COVID-induced dementia, and I just couldn't uh, focus on doing a podcast anymore. But I was like, ah, I like doing this. I like doing podcasting. I like doing podcasting with people. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like HP Lovecraft. So I kind of put it out into the world of like, hey, who wants to do this podcast with me? And James is like, I'll do it. So we uh, we cover um, mostly movies, but just kind of also pop culture stuff and media, which are both adaptations and inspirations uh, of HP Lovecraft and his work, basically. So um, yeah, that's uh, that's me in a nutshell. Oh, yeah. I'm glad you're here. I We... we used to work at a movie theater together found out we both have spooky podcasts got me on your show we did a table reading of at the mountains of madness and we also talked about oh gosh what was the movie we we came and discussed i'm glad you asked i have it called up right now uh the movie is uh the 1993 dark waters dark waters that was it the lovecraft meets folk horror question mark of a movie Uh. yeah um in which mariano bino bino i don't know how you pronounce his name declares himself to be the unholy hybrid of bergman and argento and i gotta say um unsubstantiated claims (laughs) i love the 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 confidence in that statement you know that like i think of myself as like a spielberg kubrick is what i go out into the world saying (laughs) introducing myself as right um, in the sense of, um, I have seen both uh, movies from both of those directors. Uh, <laughs> yes. I, I'm sorry that you were not on for a better episode, or at least I should say for a, an episode about a better film. But Dark Waters was, um, you know, the it, it, it's actually kind of funny because I'll think like, oh, yeah, that episode that Brian was on, what was that movie? <laughs> <laughs> so I, I remember the episode. I don't remember what we talked about because it's not really a movie worth. Um, I mean, truthfully, I was the one that picked that one, though. You had a short list and I was like, Dark Waters, because I saw it also on a list that was like top 
folk horror movies you have to watch. And so I was like, oh, two birds, one stone. Here we go. I love folk horror. Well, in fairness to you, we had a lengthy list, but many of which, many of the titles of which you want to discuss, we had already covered. So yeah, you got all the good was, ones already. It was it was kind of slim pickings unless you wanted The Call Girl of Cthulhu or... Um, or either of the know. Castle Freaks. Yes, which we are which we are now going through. We are doing... Uh, we Just this morning, I recorded the episode with James of... Uh, about Stuart Gordon's 1995 uh, Castle Freak, which is a very loose adaptation of the short story, The Outsider. And then our next episode will be covering the 2020 Barbara Crampton produce Castle Freak, which was intended to start a one of two Lovecraft cinematic universes, though, whether that is actually, whether actually either of them are going to take place is a, a different story because one was uh, supposed to be kicked off by Richard Stanley's A Color to Space, and Richard Stanley has, I don't want to say been canceled, but um, I don't know if we're going to be seeing anything from Richard Stanley. Well, yeah, he so. was, there was a shadow over Innsmouth, right? That he was, that, was that what the one he was going to be doing? And it uh, was with SpectreVision too? He was going to do a trilogy. Uh, the first one was A Color Out of Space. The second one, I think, was going to be The Haunter in the Dark. Oh, okay. Uh, and then the third one, he said on a podcast, on the postmortem podcast with Mick Garris, he just said the third one is. I believe he said something to the effect of the one that you'd expect, which I, I interpreted as the call of Cthulhu. Oh, uh, okay. But who knows if that would actually be the case, because also the call of Cthulhu would require, uh, in my opinion, quite a sizable budget and Richard Stanley, not really a guy that works or has worked with large budgets. What he apparently has worked with domestic abuse. So that's yeah. why he yeah. probably won't. Start it's really disappointing. Uh, all that news when that came out, because I, I, I thought his color out of space was actually, uh, the most yeah. recent adaptation was actually pretty good. So it was really disappointing to hear that he's he's a shitty dude. Yeah, and, and actually, uh, uh, we did, uh, you can't find it, we took it down after the allegations came out, but we did a, a recording live from the uh, Alamo Draft House in downtown Brooklyn right after we had seen it, James, and I just went into the lobby and did an episode right there, and now uh, now it's not there anymore. So. Ah. I bet that was a cool recording. It was, it was, it was a, it was a lot of fun. Um, and they were very uh, accommodating to us. I mean, that is, it was not in any official capacity. We we're just like, hey, can we come and record a podcast in your, in your, <laughs> in your theater? They're like, yeah, that's fine. Sure. So they just, you know, we got to sit up in a, in a little corner. I don't know if you've ever been to the, the draft house in Brooklyn, but off that little alcove where there's like the kind of a display case of some grotesqueries and an elevator that goes up and down, we kind of sat out over there. Yeah, just and just did our thing basically. Well, Jim. On the Happy Harvest Horror Show, we're yeah. glad to have you. We talk about how spooky our weeks was. That, that That's how we start off the episode. So as the, mm-hmm. as the guest this week, put you on the spot. How spooky was your week? Um, I would say on a scale of one to five jack-o'-lanterns, uh, maybe a half. Half a jack? Um, <laughs> half, half a jack-o'-lantern. Not a super spooky week. I'm trying to think of what would be, if there was a highlight of spookiness, it would probably just be, as I said, uh, watching uh, Stuart Gordon's Castle Freak for the episode that we recorded this morning. And that's not uh, not super spooky. In in typical low-budget Stuart Gordon fashion, pretty big on viscera, boobs, and gore. Um, not so much on spookiness, though um, the titular Castle Freak, kind of some gnarly makeup. Truly. But, yeah. Yeah, that, that's a that's kind of that's. I'm trying to think if there's anything. No, that was that was kind of that was it. Peak spookiness for me, I, I'd have to say. That's all right. I mean, you host Cast of Cthulhu. I think I think you you can be allowed to have a half a Jack Lantern week. <laughs> yes, of course. Uh, this week, uh, I on this last weekend on Shutter saw Mad God. Have you have you heard about this movie? Did they show it at Alamo? No, uh, it, it's on my list though. It's it. it who's the director? Yeah, Phil Tippett. Bill Tippett, that's right, yeah. It's stop motion, yes. It's on my list of things to see, and now that I know that it is coming to Shutter, or is on Shutter. Oh, it's, it's on there. Oh, yeah. It's ready to go. 
it's it is a, a ride oh my gosh I'm, i loved it i i think it's it's just like pure nightmare fuel of like watching this like literal descent into madness and hell and all doing so with like mixed media stop motion i there's just truly nothing else like it phil Tippett he did the the one oscars for best visual effects for jurassic park and return of the jedi and he's, he's, he's a mastermind of visual effects and he's does this movie mad god i think technically is a silent film there's no dialogue per se there's very little plot it's it's a little assassin is uh, you know it's an assassin based on the credits <laughs> that's what they call the, the main character just descending in this little pod down further and further into like this nightmare hellscape um isn't it? Isn't this also like thirty years in the making or something? Thirty like years that? in the making. I don't know the full details of that, but if, if it was just him, I mean, like the the credits roll, you know, and it's like written and directed, and it's largely him. And so I could see this has just been like a side project, probably for a better part of his life, that has finally all come together. Yeah. No, I, I am very intrigued by it. Um, yeah, it's it's Phil Tippett, of course. Yeah, a lot of creature designs. I, I don't know why the first thing that that pops into my mind for Phil Tippett is a uh, is the Wampa from Empire Strikes Back. I, I mean, he he did a lot of creature design for all of Star Wars. Or at right. least the original Star Wars, but for some reason, it's the Wampa, and I think it's because of how often, when I was younger, I watched the kind of not the remastered trilogy, but the the, the special edition trilogy. And I had it on VHS, and so each one started with a little introduction from George Lucas, and he always talked about the new. And one of the things he talked about for Empire Strikes Back was the new Wampa sequence, and he mentioned this little hand puppet that Phil Tippett designed. And for some reason, it just always sticks in my mind when I hear the name Phil Tippett. But that's his calling card. Oh, Phil Tippett. Yeah, yeah he's from the Wampa. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, the Wampa guy. The Wampa guy. I mean, even like the Wampa and like all these other visual effects, if you can, that's what he pulled off in like a pretty mainstream, like a conventional commercial uh, state. This movie is just all him. And so, like, some of the designs that came out are like, I'm upset that this exists. And it's stop motion, and then you. So I know you spent a lot of time like sculpting and making this and then even longer animating it. And so like some of these, like I, I say nightmare fuel that like it, like it'll get in under your skin a little bit, but that's what makes it so cool. Mad God. I loved it so much. So would you say uh, two jack-o'-lanterns, three jack-o'-lanterns? This was a, this was a, I'm, I'm biased because I love stop motion animation though. So this was a five jack-o'-lantern. Five jack-o'-lanterns. Wow. Okay. Mostly again, just respect. I, you're not going to see anything like it. For a while, do you, well, do, yeah, do you remember the only thing I can kind of compare it to? Not in like, not in like plot or story, but do you remember Mirror Mask? This was years ago. I feel like it was twenty years ago. It was a Neil Gaiman written movie, but it was Dave McKean was the like the the artist behind it. A lot of the visual effects. The uh, name certainly rings a bell, but I, it's not something that I've ever engaged with. I remember uh, seeing this movie when I was in high school, Mirror Mask, and it left such an impression on me of like creating a complete world that I just kind of, kind of lost in a little bit. Right. And this movie had echoes of that for me of just like, wow, this was like a singular vision, you know, of art. And- I also I also like that you said it, David McKean. And then I, like, I look up his resume like, how would I know anything that David McKean has done? As though David McKean is just a household name for Brian Muldoon. Yeah, you guys don't know David McKean? He did every cover for the Sandman comics. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yes, of course. Uh, Sandman coming out August. Can't wait for Sandman. Anyway, yeah, this might be solely Brian uh, situation, but a huge fan. Loved it. And always looking to talk more about it. But that was my spooky week. That's all I got for that. And then I uh, did a little reading this morning on cutting, catching up on some Lovecraft to talk about our, our little recluse today. Um, and I'm excited to get into it. But before we get into it, Jim, 
Yep. We have a book club. And if you'd like to join us, you can just go to anchor.fm slash HHHS slash support. And supporting at any level gets you access to the book club. And, and a big thank you from us, because uh, we really appreciate you keeping us spooky all year round. Yeah, that should about cover it. All right, let's take a quick break for one of those ads. And then we'll come back and we'll talk about the man, the HP Lovecraft. <laughs> This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. And we're back. Welcome back, everybody. Happy Harvest Horror Show. We're talking kind of just Lovecraft in general today. I think this is a really interesting discussion. Not so much just like, I mean, the history of him is is of note and interesting um, and complicated, but also just like how it's like evolved and been perceived and like became its own genre that we recognize as something is Lovecraftian, something is. And oftentimes I'm like, is it though? You know, is it like, what, what are we pulling out from it? So I thought it would be really cool. To have Jim on here, mm. a resident Lovecraft expert um, yeah. from the cast of Cthulhu. Jim, what's what is your history with Lovecraft's work? Oh, that's funny um, because seeing that as he is my favorite author, and I co-created and co-run a podcast dedicated to reviewing films based on and inspired by his works, I don't actually remember. Uh, how my relationship started. I have a an early formative memory um, in the sense of, so I, I live and work in New York, um, but before I moved here, I was working in New York, but living in New Jersey. And it was around, I guess, 2006, 2007, when my daily reading uh, habit was interfered with when I discovered podcasts. And I was so I was like, okay, what, what, what should I sort of dig into? Um, some of those early podcasts that I discovered, I still actually listen to. But one of them was, it was called uh, the HP Lovecraft Literary Society, you know, created by or hosted by hppodcraft.com. And it was two um, writers, podcasters who were basically going through the entire bibliography of HP Lovecraft. Um, some of them were just kind of short analytical episodes. Some of them were actual readings of them. Sometimes I had guests on such as Andrew Lehman. Uh, who uh, has been a guest on uh, honored us as a, as appearing on uh, the cast of Cthulhu talking about the the films that they directed. Stuart Gordon was also a guest, but they were basically kind of going through the entire bibliography of HP Lovecraft. And it's weird that I, I remember discovering that podcast, but I don't remember the impulse or the impetus in my brain that was like, Oh, I should look up something having to do with HP Lovecraft. Mm-hmm. Like, his name and presence has always just kind of been ubiquitous, which is not to say it was as much as I can't remember when I was first introduced to him. And certainly entities that he created, such as Cthulhu, I was aware of them before I was aware of where it came from sure. or that kind of thing. So, yeah. And even to this day, people will know Cthulhu or at least the name if they don't recognize the entity, but they'll kind of like they'll know that as a phrase. Um, and it's like, oh, well, you know, Cthulhu was created by this guy, H.P. Lovecraft. And it's kind of funny because he's got a very rememberable name and you kind of think it's fake, but no, that's actually his genuinely real name was Lovecraft. 
Right. And uh, yeah, so it just kind of like I it was it was started with the podcast first. And then I would just buy some books, which were collections of his short stories. And then it was discovering some of his movies. Um, you know, there was a a a party that my brother threw uh, back in like the mid 2000s when my parents were gone. And that's when I met, uh, you know, who is now my best friend. He was the best man at my wedding, uh, this guy named Phil. And, and our first conversation was talking about the movie Reanimator, uh, <laughs> which you know, which is also based on a, a Lovecraft uh, a short story. So, like, he's just kind of been a a formative voice in at least what I find to be engaging uh, or the most kind of engaging type of horror, which is not just the kind where it is good for quick, cheap, visceral thrills that you kind of forget about or, or, or kind of leave a or, or have an immediate kind of physical sensation on you. But the kind where it just kind of like it gets deep into your core and you keep thinking about because it's just it is a horror of existentialism, which mm-hmm. is so long lasting and just kind of sticks with you outside of the confines of a book or a movie. Um, it's not the kind where you turn the lights on and everything's fine. It's the kind where you turn the lights on like, well, Things are still terrible, but a light is on. <laughs> right. uh, you know, so yeah, your um, perception changes. Um, yeah, like many of the characters in the stories. And I think I was initially attracted to him because it, Lovecraft uh, was an Anglophile. Uh, he was a fan of Poe, and so certainly when I was a, a moody high school kid, like Poe, like stood out to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and and being like, and and since he was an Anglophile, like there was something about his kind of flowery way that he would write which really appealed to me you know it was different it, it wasn't it wasn't just going for visual or not visual it wasn't just going for scares but it was also going for intellectual stimulation with you as well like i mean mm-hmm. i'd have to and and he was a, a guy that wore his influences on his sleeves you know sure. a lot of the, the short stories or the collections that i wrote were the annotated kind where i had to flip in the back constantly and be like okay what is this a reference to what does this word mean what is this going and, and so like he was he was a guy that was very much unashamed of being an intellectual, uh, which was something that also kind of appealed to me as much as there were many other things about his his person that did not appeal to me, which is sure something that we'll, we'll, we'll dig into in a little bit as well. But that's a long way of saying, like, I don't know where my relationship with him started. I just know that I eventually arrived at a place where like, you know what, this guy... This guy is my favorite author. I like that what this guy brings to the table. I like the kind of horror that he is that he writes. And I also, when a Lovecraft adaptation or a film inspiration is done well, man, is it something that I, that just really sticks with me that I keep kind of going back to. Yeah. Hell yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll definitely get into the inspirations or, you know, the adaptations, because I think there's, there's, there's plenty, there's a whole, you know, harvest of, of inspired works and adaptations and, and, and whatnot. But um, you mentioned that, that the, his references were on his sleeve. This little collection that I got, Tales of Horror, it's, uh, it had actually kind of an interesting introduction at the beginning and told about how Stephen King used the word Byzantine to describe Lovecraft's works or his, his writing style because he was fr- he was writing in the 19, what, 16 was his first published work? Um, something, or yeah, 22 something like or something? Yeah, early 1900s though. But he writes as if he's like in early 1800s, like, poet um which adds to the the mythology of the works too he's talking about like old gods and unknowable and 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 every synonym you can think of for incomprehensible and (laughs) unknowable it it makes it kind of whenever i go and sit down and read it's like my gosh this is this is a little dense uh, because it feels like i'm reading something from 200 years ago when really it's yeah there are some sentences and paragraphs you kind of have to read and reread a couple times to, to to really kind of grasp it 
what is it he's trying to say because he tries to, but I also love that idea of like, he, he expresses what seems to be simple emotions in such a complex way, but they're really not. I mean, there's nothing really that simple about terror, especially when it's the kind of terror, which is like confronting your existence and your mortality. Like that is, that is complex. But the, the funny thing of course, being that he is this flowery evocative writer who, uh, uh, his characters or his protagonists are always unable to describe what they witness because they are they've passed out or you know they 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 go insane and they kind of like black out at the exact moment. So he doesn't really give you in detailed physical descriptions of a Cthulhu or of a Dagon, and as much as he gives you impressions of it and lets your brain kind of fill in the gaps. And there's yeah. something that I think is so provocative about this idea of like this thing was so horrific that we lack the language to describe what I saw. I mean, this idea of, of even, even physical environments kind of existing outside of geometry mm-hmm. is sort of like, I, I don't know what that looks like, but the fact that I can't describe it means that it is something which is strange and otherworldly and just so outside of, of our own experience. And that all, that ties into just his philosophy and this idea of, of, of because, you know, his, his stories are rooted in his own personal belief that, there is no God, there is no divine presence. And also that there is no significance to human, uh, you know, humans in general, that the universe is so vast of an expanse that um, we can't believe that we are special or unique, because we're just a blip on the cosmic radar, basically. And so to have these protagonists who are confronted with this idea of, here is a creature, here is a being, here is an existence or reality, which is outside of our own like well of course it is because we only grasp a, an infant like a you know such a small infinitesimal corner of reality that of course it makes sense that there are things outside of that that uh we are insignificant or, or we we do not register on them because it's like oh you're these tiny pitiful humans like how could you you know possibly grasp what we are or what is outside of your own perceptions yeah that that change in like the universal hierarchy i guess and in a way of like that we're infinitely smaller than we'd love to think that we think the universe should be it's we're the center of the universe right this is our existence and then like doing some research on this and and you know kind of learning that early 1900s there was a lot of it was a huge shift in technology and science and in worldwide understanding and like it, it with geology we're finding millions of years of history just in the bedrock of the earth with astronomy there's he i read that he wanted to be an astronomer at one point too which doesn't surprise me you know and but so like just during his life there was all this grander knowledge that is all highlighting this effect that we are just a just a blip on all of it that it, it really are concerns and our existence is is irrelevant to most of the cosmos you know well and and not just the discovery of you know the universe and and uh the the vastness around us so that was actually his some of his first i don't want to say necessarily published works but some of his first written works were were papers on astronomy um that was something that he was very much into even when he was in school he was into that sort of stuff but that in conjunction with also just the crumbling reality or what you know to be reality and existence I mean, because, you know, he was born to a a pretty well-to-do family that had money and had reputation. And his father uh, slowly went insane because of, I believe it was syphilis is what happened. So he was institutionalized. And then with the absence of the patriarch of his family, the the family fortune was mishandled. There were bad business ventures. You know, his own prominence, his own construction of what was 
life and reality slowly broke down and dwindled until all of a sudden he's this impoverished guy living with like a doting mother Mm -hmm. um, just kind of like seeing your own existence basically crumble before your eyes so so that that vast you know or that that idea of the cosmic vastness and insignificance combined with oh what i have accepted as life and reality is no longer like that is a that's a powerful and kind of like demoralizing combination sure Um, and you see not and you see both of those things in his stories, especially, you know, not just the cosmic insignificance of like, yes, these old gods, which are actually just these alien creatures that come from outside of our, our universe, but also this idea of an inherent stain or curse on a family, which is handed down and cannot be escaped. Like those are mm-hmm. two of the biggest things that you see in his stories a lot of and, and sometimes even, you know, they, they meet together in a Venn diagram of, of, of terror. We love a good Venn diagram of terror here. <laughs> Big fan. I mean, this is also something I didn't know that both of his parents were institutionalized in his lifetime. I didn't know that. I didn't know. Uh, largely, he had a very unhappy life. Exterior circumstances, for sure. But also, like, self, self-brought. self He was a recluse by the end. What I've read is he had a wife, an estranged wife. He uh, did not work. He would prioritize buying paper over food and died at the age of 46. Correct. And even when he was offered for weird tales, he was offered the editorship and he turned it down. So there's there's all these instances of, of of a man that like like you said is the perception of the universe was probably just really rocked and never bounced back, which gave us a plethora of some of the best horror <laughs> written, you know, but as far as an existence it much like Poe, it sounds like it was a pretty miserable time. Yeah, and Poe was his idol. Uh, you see that a, a lot in some of the stories that he wrote um, and some letters that he wrote as well. I, I mean, I said it at the top of the show, we just recorded an episode about uh, Castle Freak, which is based on The Outsider, which he himself admits was like him kind of trying to emulate Poe in that story. But, uh, you know, also, he, he, he's not, I don't want to say he's an entirely innocent guy. He was a recluse, but some of that re- reclusivity also dealt with the fact that he was socially awkward and also a xenophobe. Mm-hmm. Um, so he didn't really want to leave New England. And whenever he did, just was always like, get me back to New England because the rest of the world is a horrible place, specifically New York City, which he did move to for a short amount of time because he, he moved with his wife, Sophia Green. And it's weird to think that he was married because he is so... I, I just have, sort of have the perception of him being so asexual um, or at least not caring about physical intimacy or interpersonal relationships because of having a focus on um, intellectual stimulation. First and foremost, he was a, a prolific uh, correspondent, tons of letters right. um, with, uh, you know, with with some friends, with some other authors. Uh, he was friends with a Robert E. Howard, the guy that created Conan the Barb. Um, he would, you know, he would correspond with young uh, authors who were coming up themselves and giving them advice, but also like didn't really want to leave New England. And a lot of that was due to, you know, unfortunately, kind of a, a classism and a, a racism. I mean, when he for sure, when he when he moved to New York, he was horrified by the non white races that were around him. And he wrote some of his worst in terms of quality and attitude about society some of the worst stuff that he wrote came from the time when he lived in brooklyn including like the horror at red hook um yeah which that's is, what i read yeah a, a a horribly racist piece and also like was the kind of guy too that wasn't just racist in the sense of like i am looking down upon african americans or chinese americans or asian americans but also like the, the kind of guy that was like you know hitler didn't have some bad ideas he just took them too far kind of a guy um, which was also horrible considering his wife was Jewish. Yeah, so he was he was a really 
in many ways a really horrible person by all accounts, like kind of softened a little bit near, I don't want to say old age because he died when he was in his forties, but near the end of his life, um, which I think was partially kind of due to, to just the, like him being a prolific correspondent and just like being exposed to other people's ideas and that kind of stuff, but was for the most part kind of kept in his New England bubble, specifically his Providence bubble, which I've been to Providence. It is a wonderful city, but, uh, but kind of kept within a kind of a cultural uh, and social bubble that he didn't really want to be exposed to outside of that. But yeah, also wrote some wonderful things and is one of the most influential genre authors like in history. Basically. That's the, I think that's the conundrum, especially in recent years. I feel like there's been kind of a reckoning for Lovecraft, which I mean, he's been long dead, but it's, it's, yeah. I think that that conversation is, is maybe for people who are still alive and still profiting off of it all, you know, but like it's, it's an inch, always an interesting conversation because a lot of these insecurities, a lot of these fears that he had in, in, in other cultures and races and in all of the stuff led to these neuroses led to his work being so tormented. Yeah, no. And, and there, there certainly has has been, I don't know if you want to call it a reckoning or maybe uh, a, a revisiting of him as a person, as an author, even, um, I mean, the World Fantasy Award, which is a, a set of awards given each year for like the best fantasy fiction since it, from its inception until I think about 2015, the prize itself was like a little bust of H.P. Lovecraft. And they changed that, I think, because um, th- there were there were some winners who were not people of color who sort of like, I, you know, why? Why is this uh, award that's being given out is, is the depiction of a man who hated people like me? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so there 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 was that reckoning in that sense. And even in, in recent years, there has been a lot of revisiting, especially with in the wake of something like um, HBO's Lovecraft Country, which is based on the novel by Matt Ruff. Um, and just this idea of what is what is actually inherent in, at in Lovecraft work because it's one of those things where you can try and 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 you know James and I have had conversations about this plenty of like separating the art from the artist but when it comes to this specific artist some of his hateful philosophies were inherent within the art itself mm-hmm. um, not just something like the horror Red Hook but also like um, the Rats in the Walls which is a great story except for the fact that there is a cat which has a horrible name. Um, and I refuse to say it out loud, but if you want to go Google it, go go ahead, which was once again, just kind of a, a endemic of, of sort of what his attitude was kind of thing. Uh, and But the, there certainly has been a, and I, I think why there has been a revisiting is, is because there also has been kind of a, a rejuvenation in Lovecraft or Lovecraftian tales. And I think that is due entirely to the fact that existential horror and this idea of like we're no longer scared by creatures we're no longer scared by <clears throat> even people which is like you know post 9-11 the early 2000s of like this idea of like well now it's it's people which are the most horrifying but now it is kind of existential threats it's climate change it's racism it is gun violence or these things which are kind of like can often feel like it doesn't matter what we do as individuals or society these things are going to be are going to be here are, are changing right. and there's this like this this fear of of not being able to do anything about it almost as though you have an inescapable fate almost like your lovecraftian protagonist so this idea of an existential dread and this idea of a a horror which cannot be escaped and which is far beyond anything that we can do about is resonating with people yeah absolutely and so um and, and then also of course, so that means you know some lovecraftian themes are coming back in, into play and then also of course you have his name being introduced, reintroduced because of stuff like Lovecraft Country, which was first the novel and now the TV series, the short-lived TV series, I will say. I know, it's sad, sadly short-lived. 
but you know, and then of course, Richard Stanley's color out of space and this idea of this, this guy of, of Lovecraft and Cthulhu always being a thing. And now people are kind of like, Oh, where does this come from? Yeah. Um, and I think the reason that we're also able or, or that we've been able to sort of reappropriate him and his ideas is also because his stuff exists in the public domain. Mm-hmm. So there, there is no family, there is no estate, there is nobody that is profiting off of his books being published or his films being or, or his stories being adapted. And so that has led to people kind of like the door being open to kind of people being like, okay, I'm going to do what I want with this stuff. I'm going to reshape it in such a way which I find to be relevant mm-hmm. uh, or resonant with me. So I mentioned the horror at Red Hook has a, uh, and, and, and why that is relevant because there is a very popular uh, novel called The Ballad of Black Tom, which basically takes a character from that story and makes and tells a story from his perspective, basically. And, and this story is written by uh, an author of color whose name is escaping me. I'm, I'm very sorry about that. You know, The Ballad of Black Tom is up there. And even though Matt Ruff himself is a white person, Lovecraft Country is focuses on an African-American family um, going through pre-civil rights era America and Lovecraft country being very much um, twofold in the sense of a country where Lovecraft creatures actually exist, but also where the attitude of a Lovecraft person is pervasive throughout the country. Um, And so when you talk about existential dread and existential fear and this idea of of systems and things outside of your control, which are a threat to your daily existence or your, your, or your, your insignificance of a human Racism, of course, is one of those things and can be one of those things. So you have these these people kind of like taking these stories and kind of like twisting, not even twisting, but changing his themes to such an extent, which is like, okay, I'm going to tell you a story from my perspective about these things and what it means to be an insignificant human from my perspective as someone who's been suppressed or oppressed by a racist country. So you do have stuff like Lovecraft Country. You have uh, authors like N.K. Jemisin in The City We Became, which is not a a Lovecraft story, but is very much Lovecraftian and in which H.P. Lovecraft is cited as, uh, as an author in that world, but in which all of our main characters are basically people of color who are experiencing this um, threat from a, the embodiment of an, uh, of an existential evil that is uh, manifest as a white person, basically. So we are able, or, or people, I shouldn't say we, people have been able to kind of dig him back up only to kind of use his craft in a way that suits them and suits their stories, their individual experiences, their lived um, experiences um, without having to worry about him profiting or an estate profiting, which may be sort of like, it, it's kind of the problem that we have now with like Harry Potter. We're like, well, JK, yeah. JK Rowling is such like yeah. a, a garbage being, but she is continuing to profit off of these movies and these books and these kind of stuff. We're like we don't have that with Lovecraft. We can do whatever we want with him. People can do whatever they want with him. They can kind of take like, you know, they can take what they like about him and be like, but I'm going to reshape it in my experience or in my image. And I'm going to reject the worst parts of you. And you can do right. that. People can yeah. do that. And people have been doing that. Cause yeah, I think you're right on the money that like the fear at the center of it, of that, that, that inconsequential existential fear uh, of how meaningless, you know, we can, be in, in, our, in whatever universe that's pretty universal and that can be it's why it's you know incredibly influential and whole term we can describe a movie as lovecraftian nowadays and most people would like i have an idea what that means now yeah i think that's what's really beautiful about like the resurgence i'm seeing a lot of adaptations come out and i don't think it's any uh 
mistake that it's coming out when we're having this huge global reckoning of a lot of different things. I just think it was it's really important to like while talking and praising about Lovecraft is also bringing up you know the the less shiny parts about him because it's yeah absolutely get paint the full picture about it. Well, and I think an important thing or, or idea to keep in mind is is because there's always there's always a but in a conversation where it's sort of like, um, well, sure, you know, he was racist, but he was this like significant author, or like, or he was a significant author, like, but also this and that. And, and I think what you have to do is 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 use the word and instead, so, like and, he was a yeah. fan, he was a fantastic author, highly influential. Even people who were not aware of him or not explicitly citing uh, citing him in their works are bringing up Lovecraftian themes because of, of what what he popularized has become so pervasive in pop culture. And also, he was a tremendously racist individual. And just embracing both of those things and, and, and admitting that people can be that, not excusing his racism, not, um, not saying that his great work offsets the fact that he was a racist, but saying like both of those things exist at the same time. And here I am a white guy who's saying this white author who was racist is one of my favorites of all time. And if mm-hmm. someone says like, yeah, but fuck that guy because he's racist, I'd be like, yeah, that makes total sense to me too. Like, and yeah. that's fine. Yeah. Because also I don't think you, you know, it's also kind of thing like, yes, we, we, we do have Lovecraft but also because of Lovecraft. We also have so many other things that you can appreciate, you know, it, it starts with Stephen King as an author who is, who is very much influenced by him down to Batman, you know, because Arkham Asylum was a creation because Arkham was a creation of H.P. Lovecraft. So like his, his influences and his creations are pervasive everywhere. So even if you don't like him, there are still things that you can like about what he created, what he gave to the world. And thankfully, or I'd like to hope that we can say it's like his racism is not one of those things, which is going to survive right? because of authors who are kind of taking upon himself and like, you know what? There's some good shit here. And I'm going to improve upon it or I'm going to make it my own thing. Um, that is really a wonderful thing. Yeah. And because there are still like even outlets and venues that I really love and respond are, are kind of like they'll they'll tiptoe around the thing and be like, oh, you know, well, it's kind of, a you know, you have to kind of take the, you know, what, who he was and the time he was running from. It's like, no, can we just, just please, say what like, it is? Yeah. Just say, just say what it is, um, please. And, and I think that there are people who are not willing to go there because they want, they, they don't want to risk kind of alienating one side or, or the other. I mean, uh, there's a, a podcast out there called old gods of Appalachia, mm-hmm. Appalachia however you want to pronounce it, but it, it is a, it's a fiction pot, like a fiction serial podcast, which very much is old gods and Lovecraftian stuff, but they basically fully denounce Lovecraft. So like, we don't mention his name. We don't want to talk about him. We are disgusted by him. Like, but, but they can do it because even though he is one of the, the most influential voices in cosmic horror, he is not the only voice in it. Um, and so, you know, people right. have been able to take what he has done and run with it and make it their own thing. And that is, that's kind of a wonderful thing. Um, this weird bittersweet thing that it's like, Oh, all these emerging voices are coming out of cosmic horror, which cosmic horror itself is just kind of like, yeah, everything is, is sort of, I don't want to say meaningless, but everything is kind of horrifying and inescapable. And like, you know, how do we find our own significance within this vast nothingness? Basically, I I don't know the answer <laughs> to that. Yeah, it's you mentioned Cosmic Horror. the The episode preceding this one, we did one on voids, and we were really dancing around Cosmic Horror at that point yes. because I think those are existentially dreadful. And Corey, my co-host, uh, thinks they're delightful, and <laughs> I think there's something horrifying in the infinite nothingness, and she finds it comforting. And it's that infinite nothingness 
largely the part of a lot of these stories that that I want to get into the next part when when something's called Lovecraftian versus existential horror or cosmic horror. What is what do we mean by that? It's Lovecraftian, you know, because I think when I got onto your your show last Oh my gosh, was this earlier this year, last year? I can't even time remember is, now. Time is relevant. Uh, time is relevant. But it was, I had asked that, like, my perception before I had read any Lovecraft was that Lovecraftian means uh, wet in tentacles. <laughs> it, damp in tentacles. That's what I, I thought that's wet. Space tentacles. Yeah. <laughs> but that's, that, from not reading, the context is a, a lot of Cthulhu and space tentacles. So what, from a, from a resident super fan of Lovecraft's writing, what would you describe the term Lovecraftian as a, is that now it's been co-opted as this genre now? Mm. Yes. It, it would not be space hentai uh, is, is what is what people often think of it to be. Um, but for me, it is uh, something Lovecraftian for me is sort of something which is a, a fate or which is sort of inescapable, if you will. Um, this idea that there yeah. are forces working um, so far above or beyond you that not only can you not comprehend it, but you can't do anything to change it. Um, for me, a really good um, film, which could be like a Lovecraft inspiration, if not an adaptation, is one where like you kind of look back on it and you kind of realize like as soon as this movie began, there was no changing what was going to happen. Um, mm-hmm. There was no there was no escaping what was going to be. There were just kind of people like basically rearranging the deck chairs on the, on the Titanic. Like they could do some things in the immediate future, but in the long run, there was nothing they, they were going to do. And they were always going to end up at this fate because there are forces beyond it, whether it's something like gravity or aliens or some type of deity or just the universe itself. Like it's so beyond us or beyond you or beyond the protagonist that, doesn't matter what you wanted to do or tried to do. You weren't going to do anything about it. And as someone who, well, I I was raised, I mean, I I still am religious, but as someone who was certainly raised uh, in a much more conservative or religious upbringing, that idea of God having a plan was something that was supposed to be comforting when things were outside of your control. But then if you eventually get to the point where things like there is, there either is no plan or despite what I'm trying to do, there is something which is conspiring against me is such a horrifying thought. Like it goes against everything that you've been taught to believe about your own creation and purpose on this earth or in this, uh, in this universe, basically. Yeah. Um, So yeah, that, that would be Lovecraftian for me is this, that idea of like, you know, uh, best laid plans of mice and men, but at the end of the day, whatever these forces dictate or, or not even dictate the fact that they could just be random. Yeah. Um, but they are random and more powerful and influential than you and what you can do that. It doesn't matter what you do because you are ultimately going to succumb to a fate, which is outside of um, not only your control, but sometimes maybe outside of your comprehension. So uh, we, as, as humans don't deal well with uncertainty and with not um, knowing things. I mean, the, the X-Men animated cartoon of the early nineties taught me very early on. And I realized how true it is that like people always fear what they don't understand. Yeah. And so we see that even on a, on a, a, a vitriolic, horrible, despicable basis of, well, I, you know, trans kids are, are should be forbidden from it because like that's gross and it's outside of what my perception of normal and reality is. They're afraid of that. And so they lash out against it. Um, and then on a large scale of like, I'm afraid of what exists outside of the confines of the universe. If there was a big bang, that meant that, you know, the universe expanding, that meant that there was something outside of what the universe was at one point. What is that thing? I don't know. That's horrifying to think about and will keep me up at night. 
And that's what I'm getting at with the voids here. Like the last episode, I, that infinite nothingness is, is the least comforting thing in the world to me. <laughs> like that. You know, what's weird is that it, it's like I, I side with both of you in the sense of it's horrifying to think about, but also at the same time makes this physical reality and existence in front of us all the more special because it yeah. may be the only thing we have. And yeah, it, like if it turns out there is, you know, there is no God and there's no, there's nothing outside of this existence. And when we die, it's all meaningless. Like, okay, cool. That just means that I'm going to enjoy this beer that I have a little bit more or that, you know, I'm going to enjoy, you know, petting this cat, which is next to me. It doesn't take away from anything that I'm doing right now because this stuff is all wonderful here and right now too. That's like the, uh, the simulation theory that a lot of people come out the other side. You can come out like you know, the simulation theories that we all live in a big program, computer program. And at the, that, uh, you could either accept that like, well, I'm part of a program. Might as well enjoy my program, you know, cause I can't change it. Or you could lash out at the, you know, the unchangeable that I, I'm, yeah. I'm a Buzz Lightyear, you're a toy. Um, you know, that, that. Which might be Lovecraftian. Would you call that moment <laughs> Lovecraftian? The the moment of seeing of the Buzz Lightyear's reckoning that he is but a toy. Um, I that, that's that's um, I wouldn't call it Lovecraftian, but there, there certainly is a, a an existential awakening that comes out of that because Buzz still has you know free will after that. Uh, sure, you know, Buzz, Buzz still is able to change his fate. He just embraces that his story or his fate is a different one than what he came up to believe. Buzz Lightyear's story is more of sort of like. Um, you know, the the evangelical who sort of realizes there is no God and ultimately becomes a like an agnostic. Like, you know, it's it's freeing and it's, it's freeing, but it's different. OK, um, you know, but uh, but yeah. And also the simulation theory, um, I, I soundly reject because Ellen Musk believes in it. So fuck that guy. <laughs> so that has to be wrong. <laughs> yeah, I'll subscribe to that for sure. I think we're on our way to start talking about some some adaptations because I, I want to know what your favorite Lovecraft movies have been like, as you say, when, when they get it right, it's something special. So I'm wondering, what are your favorite adaptations that have happened? So my favorite adaptations would probably be in no particular order, um, from beyond, uh, the Stuart Gordon adaptation, uh, with Jeffrey Combs and Barbara Crampton. Hell yeah. Um, that is a fascinating one because the story is four pages long. Um, so basically what they do is they have to build out an entire world that is, just kind of maybe exists as passing references on in, in four pages. But that one I think is great because it, it sort of does um, tap into a lot of Lovecraftian themes specifically of uh, the idea of like, if, if there is nothing outside of us and all that we have is this sort of physical reality, how, how can that physicality or that physical reality, like being the ultimate kind of existence, how, how do we tap into that as, as something that can be explored and also abused kind of a thing. Um, right. Plus, there's also some gnarly practical effects, as is often the case with early Stuart Gordon films or, or Stuart Gordon films from like the 80s and 90s. Uh, so that one is one of my favorite ones. I also would say this is a a, a hot take, but there is a movie from um, I believe it's 1997 that has two titles. It's either Hemoglobin or Bleeders. Um, I believe that it was originally um, put out. Was it originally put out as Hemoglobin and then re-released as Bleeders or put out as Bleeders and re-released as Bleeders? <laughs> I, I, uh, I, I'll leave it to you <laughs> to let me know because I do not know. Yeah, but uh, but it, it is it's very it's a very weird one. Um, and and you know, kind of easily dismissible because it's it's you know low budget and it's got these weird kind of little practical creature effects, but also does tap into that idea that Lovecraftian idea we just discussed of of 
having a, an inescapable fate, basically. Um, mm-hmm. It's a, uh, it's, and it is weird. It, it's got some themes of twincest in there and there's a free YouTube version, which has like Greek subtitles on it for some reason. Um, okay. I, I'm looking back at my, my episode list and, and it's, it was originally entitled bleeders, but was re-released as hemoglobin. It, it does tap into that idea of, of a, a protagonist who kind of goes home and discovers this family secret that is, that shakes him to his very core because it defines his own, his, his own physical existence, his own lineage. And this idea of like the end is such a tragic end because it's basically, it's not a happy ending. It's him just being like, well, this is my fate. This is what I have to live out. Um, mm-hmm. And it's kind of horrible, especially when that fate involves like cannibalistic behaviors and, and um, you know, interbreeding with strange uh, subterranean creatures. But it does tap into that idea of, it doesn't matter what I want in my life. This is what I am doomed to live out basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I would also probably say uh, we, I mentioned the HP Lovecraft literary society. Um, they have uh, produced a couple adaptations in the past, including a, an adaptation of the call of Cthulhu and the whisper in darkness. And what makes mm-hmm. them really cool is not just their, their fidelity to the source material and to the themes, but also they, the production design and the direction is all done as though they were adapting the film from the time period that the story takes place. So basically the 1930s. Um, mm-hmm. So they're they're um, So the call of Cthulhu is a, a silent film. You know, they have the interstitials, uh, you know, the, the titles that kind of pop up with what people are talking about um, and all the, all the effects are done with, you know, uh, as effects could have been done in the 1930s. So all practical stuff, um, camera trickery and those kind of things. And, and they're all done in black and white. And those are very, very cool. Um, so those are some of my favorite, I'd say, direct adaptations. Some fans might be out there listening and say like, hey, I noticed that you didn't mention Reanimator. And no, Reanimator is not one of my favorite adaptations. <laughs> um, I actually have a lot of problems with that movie. I, I think it's a very, a pretty good B uh, horror movie from the 1980s. I don't think it's a very good adaptation specifically because and this is on me. This is not on anything that Stuart Gordon does. I don't like the way that he incorporates humor into the story. I think it is antithetical to that story. And I don't think it works very well. Um, and there's also the rape sequence, which I don't really particularly care for um, these days, but yeah. Um, uh, Reanimator is a, is a fun movie. A lot of, once again, gnarly kind of practical effects and a wonderful performance from Jeffrey Combs, of course. But um I, I find that there are real tonal problems with that movie that I just can't reconcile based on um, what I know and what I really enjoy um, about the about the, the story itself. I just don't think that Stuart Gordon's use of humor in that movie works particularly well. I think it's done to a, a, a much worse and far dr- more dramatic extent in Dagon, uh, yeah. which is ironically not an adaptation of Dagon, but an adaptation of the shadow over Innsmouth. I think it, uh, I, I think the humor does not work very well um, in that adaptation. And that, and that is on me. That is not necessarily on Stuart Gordon. I just, I don't think it works super well. There is also a, a rape sequence in there, which I think, um, I mean, was never good to begin with, but also like, ugh, come on guys. Like this is yeah. really bad that we still have this in there. Um, I always find that when when you go for like really low brow humor, how how bad it ages. Yeah, and not even yeah. low brow, like like it, it was raunchy, not okay. You know, humor back then like really isn't okay anymore. And uh, but I mean, you know, again, some pretty gnarly practical effects, as as is the case, as we have already mentioned, with Stuart Gordon in the in the in the eighties and the nineties. Uh, a fabulous performance from Jeffrey Combs. Um, yes, yes. But uh, I I don't like 
the tonal mix in that film. I don't think it works particularly well. And it opens the door for Beyond Reanimator and um, um, uh, Bride of Reanimator to just really kind of lean more into the humor in a, in a way which I think right. is actually quite bad. And yes, Richard Stanley is a problematic uh, character, but his adaptation of The Color Out of Space is actually very good. As is, there's a an adaptation of The Color Out of Space that I believe is free if you are a Prime subscriber on Amazon, done by a German expat uh, named Juan Vu. He is, or no, he's a Vietnamese expat who is living in Germany um, that made an adaptation of The Color Out of Space that is entirely in German but subtitled, and it's all in black and white. But it is, it's great. It is a, I would, I would go out so far as to say as, as it's a great ad- adaptation, and The Color Out of Space is one of my favorite Lovecraft stories, especially considering how it does dig into this idea of um, inescapable fate and you know cosmic insignificance, but um, seen through the lens of one individual family that is physically and emotionally um, deteriorating mm-hmm. without any uh, strictly because of a random cosmic chance that something crashed on their property and started poisoning them. And it's just like it's unfair and it's horrible. And that's just the way it is um, in this world. So uh, th- those are all I'd say some of my some of my favorites. Right on, right on. I think because I, I uh, some of my favorite, I guess, adaptations aren't even adaptations. They're just inspired. Like I feel like John Carpenter's In the Mouth of Madness is not a, it feels like it would be a Lovecraft story, but it, you've seen In the Mouth of Madness. Yeah, of course you have, right? We, we have covered the entire Apocalypse trilogy on, on our <laughs> okay, podcast. Good. Yeah, um, and, and yeah, and that one, he is very vocal and very like, yeah, that is his Lovecraft story in the middle right. of yeah, I think that one. I think about other things like like uh, Stephen King has the Mist. I feel like is is a bit of Lovecraftian, yep. um, uh, which I just reread um, recently because I've been going through all of his stories on audiobooks, and that that story is haunting, horrifying. Yes. Um, I just finished another Stephen King story, Revival, and I don't want to spoil it for anyone that uh, you know that hasn't read it, but it has such a it has some themes that evoke this like sort of cosmic insignificance and, and perception altering and seeing the world in a different way, kind of a la the great God Pan. Um, if you're unfamiliar with the great God Pan, it starts, it's a oh, famous yeah. story. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, for, for our listeners that don't know this famous story that starts off with an experiment where they do some minor brain surgery. So you like perceive things that our normal brain would not. And the patient goes insane because they that reportedly see the great God Pan. Um, mm-hmm. And the story that follows um, revival touches on a similar way of like just a small little switch. You're, you'll realize that the world isn't, it doesn't look anything like everyone else around you is seeing. And you're, you're even seeing it is, is a very different machine, um, yep. which I think is horrifying. Yeah. And, and two, two fun things about the great God pan. Number one, I believe Stephen King called the, uh, the greatest horror story that was ever written um, or something to that effect. And then uh, number two, um, I mentioned from beyond uh, a similar premise in the sense of uh, there is a machine which um, stimulates a gland in your brain, which lets you um, perceive existence and realities, which you would not normally with your common senses. So uh, very much, once again, Lovecraft kind of reading what had come before him and being inspired by that and uh, using that to kind of tell his own story. Man, there's so many good adaptations out there and not even just games or, or sorry, not even just movies. There's also games. There's plenty of video games based off of, you know, his work. There's board games, the Arkham horror series, um, mm-hmm. which I going back to our earlier discussion about progressively thinking about his works, they have like a nice write up at the beginning, you know, 
acknowledging the same things we just talked about. Mm-hmm. I think if you're if you're honoring that that work nowadays, I think it's responsible to bring it up. Um, the, those the board games is also done. Uh, graphic novels. There's plenty of uh, crafting inspired comics. I just read one last week called The Passageway by uh, Jeff Lemire has a little void in there too. And it just made me upset again. I feel like it's like a theme of this last, <laughs> last few months between outer range of this story, our podcast, like there's just all these little voids <laughs> coming up to make me upset, but hugely influential. I'm trying well, to think I'll, of even more movies. I will, I will throw, if you, if you just want ones which are kind of Lovecrafty and uh, inspirations and instead of um, uh, uh, adaptations, adaptations. I, will, mm-hmm. I will throw a couple more at you. Of course there is, um, John Carpenter's The Apocalypse Trilogy, which you already mentioned, um, In the Mouth of Madness. I will also throw Prince of Darkness in there. Um, not Prince of the, Darkness for sure. Not the best of the Apocalypse Trilogy, but my personal favorite of all three of them. I will also say um, uh, Annihilation, Alex Garland film from 2008, yes. is so similar to the Colorado Space without actually being a Colorado Space adaptation. Like It's actually an adaptation of a different novel, and yet... That is a pretty great one. The Void from 2016 uh, might scare you a little bit because of... (laughs) I watched The the Void getting ready for our uh, Void episode and realizing this Mm -hmm. is just cosmic horror and nothing to do with what our episode was about. But that that, it is a... It's an effective film, The Void. I, I've seen it a few times now, and every few years, I think I keep thinking about it. Like it, yeah. it, it, a lot of things that Lovecraft stories do very well, this one also does well, and it kind of sticks with you. And it also gets yeah. a lot of that Stuart Gordon sort of like viscera in there too. Absolutely. And then also uh, one that I will throw in is um, a a film which was kind of dumped into theaters late in the pandemic and kind of found a cult following online, uh, The Empty Man from 2020. What do you think of The Empty Man? <laughs> now that we're here. I mean, I, I can't go into too great a detail because it's been a while. We did do an episode on The Empty Man. Um, I found it to be pretty great. Um, yeah. And I, because I, one of the many things which stood out to me, but I will I will kind of uh, focus on one thing is I, I, I like the idea of, which is also coincidentally a, another adaptation of a source material that uh, that goes wildly off of what the source material uh, was trying to do. But I like the idea that there's kind of a, a, there's like that almost kind of Scientology sort of like church or cult in that movie, which I yeah. kind of like the idea of sort of like a, the, a modern day Cthulhu cult uh, would not be, uh, you know, wearing robes and meeting in the woods, but would probably be a Scientology type of cult. So I like that in my mind, it was sort of like a, a, a contemporary Cthulhu cult kind of a thing, worshiping this deity, but while also trying to be kind of a legitimate organization on the surface of it. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. But I, I liked it a lot. I know that there was kind of like there was a backlash against it because so many people were kind of like, "Oh my god, I've discovered this thing and it's great." And then everyone's like, "Okay, can you stop talking about the Empty Man now?" But certainly is certainly worth watching. I believe it's on HBO Max. I will also throw out one more uh, printed thing. Um, if you are yeah. an Alan Moore fan, Alan Moore is a huge HP Lovecraft fan. Um, he has done a couple things through um, Avatar Press, including um, Providence, which is a both a prequel and sequel to his previous stories of Neonomicon and the Courtyard. And so it's it's a great story, not just because Alan Moore is a wonderful storyteller, but also because he is working with both you know images and words, he is able to kind of squeeze in a whole lot of Lovecraft adaptation or 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 things from Lovecraft work. So like it just in in the corner of one frame, someone is reading a book which is a book which is mentioned in one of the short stories of like the terrible old man or something like, so it's like, it's these little things where there's these little Easter eggs that Lovecraft is like, Oh shit. Not just is this a good story, but 
this is a guy who knows how to incorporate Easter eggs and homages into a piece to actually enhance the world instead of just kind of doing like the, hey, hey, here's this thing, huh? Pretty cool, right? <laughs> Cthulhu, pretty cool, right? <laughs> you yeah, know? Cool, right? Oh, my uh, gosh. Yeah, I mean, there's there's so much to dig into. I think there's, we, we have a spooky podcast. We're nearing our episode 50th episode. I think it was important for us to eventually address the Lovecraft in the room. And so a lot of wonderful adaptations. I love the, 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 the fear at the heart of a lot of his stories is, I think, a pretty universal thing. And I think that's why these stories are still around. I mean, this this existential dread that the world is, is uh, the universe is one way and I can't change it and I'm very insignificant on it is, is more prevalent today than maybe ever, you know? So thank you so much for coming on and, and opening the doors because I, I was kind of lost at sea and having to talk about it. But uh, very fortunate that I've got a friend that, that hosts a Lovecraft podcast. So <laughs> appreciate you coming yeah. on. And, and we'll, we'll take any excuse to, uh, to talk about it, certainly. So I, I, I certainly appreciate this this time. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this would, in the future, I think we would love to do another existential slash cosmic horror episode, which would definitely... H.P. Lovecraft would have a stake in, but I think the genre has is a lot bigger than just his contributions to it, which makes it now when we call something in a Lovecraftian genre, that's something that I've been reckoning lately is like, yeah, I think it's a lot bigger than even he intended at this point, you know? Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Rat. Yeah, that was, that was a lot of fun. Thanks for coming on. Will uh, we ever have more cosmic horror? Definitely have you on and always, I'm always down to talk. Any yeah, certainly. So. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and you know, if, if there was, if there was a, you know, a couple people on, cause yeah, I could speak to Lovecraft stuff. I have to say, admittedly, I've, I've really not explored many authors outside of him. Um, cause even, even after he died, people kind of picked up and, and expanded on his mythology, um, and his world. And I've not really dug into any of that kind of stuff, but like, you know, um, adding on to like new gods and adding elements to them. And so like Cthulhu is a water God and this one's like a fire God. And it's like, okay, well that, that, that just that, that and, and then like adding morals and kind of like a hierarchy onto him was like, well, these are the good ones and these are the bad ones. Like, no, 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 no. What made them terrifying was just that they, they just were and didn't care for they like, were. Not that they were. Yeah, that, that was that. That's enough for me. Yeah, you see, you're explaining too much of it. Start of that story is like the unknowable is the scariest thing in the world. Or, I'm, of course, I butchered it. He put it much more eloquently. But like the scary, the, the most universal fear is the unknown. And uh, when you start explaining it away, hey, you lose a lot of that. It's right here on my arm. Uh, the oldest and strongest emotion of mankind is fear, and the oldest and strongest kind of fear is fear of the unknown. There we go. They always got it right on your body, ready to go when you need it. <laughs> I love it. A lot like with the later Halloween sequels when they started explaining Michael Myers or try to. Oh, yeah. It's like, no, don't. Of course, yeah, Stop it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this was a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jim. We'll catch up soon. Uh, thank you for, for talking to Lovecraft on our show and hope you all enjoyed it. Again, we're yeah. our Happy Harvest Horror Show. If you'd like to join our book club, just give us a little support at anchor.fm slash HHHS slash support. We'd love to have you join. And until next time, hope you all stay spooky.